Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot, grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host. And in this conversation, recorded in October 2019, I speak with an older brother on the path for many decades, Peter Russell. Peter is a physicist. He's also a teacher of meditation. He's best known for his books, The Global Brain, uh, Waking Up in Time, from, God to, or from Science to God. And he really brings together many disciplines and he understands the big picture and has really been about this work of synthesizing science and spirituality and helping people be present to and have some peace of mind and peace of heart in rapidly accelerating times. I think you'll enjoy this. When I first saw you using the term post-doom, I thought, what does that mean? Uh, it's like, oh, is it like after the doom, what happens after the doom? Or is it post-doom thinking about thinking in a different way than doom? Um, I don't know. It's, it's not a term that sort of naturally resonates with me. Sure. I think sure. There's, a, there's a lot of doom thinking, clearly. And yeah. I think what I try to do is actually think about it in a new way. It's so easy to get caught up in the doom and or, I mean, one of the phrases I use is people talk about doom and gloom, and I talk these days about doom and light. You know, there's a light there as well. At the same time as the doom, it's not, it's not there's a light beyond the doom so much, yes. but there's, within all that's happening, and the, the sort of, what I also call sometimes the great unraveling, within the great unraveling, there is still an immense possibility for us in terms of our own journey, awakening, discoveries, consciousness, knowledge, etc. For those who are watching this or listening to this, uh, Peter, who don't know, you know, maybe they read something or watched something of yours decades ago, but they're not up to speed in terms of where you're at and, uh, and what you are known for. Uh, there will be young people that, that uh, Peter Russell don't know, never heard of them. So help us get you, help, help the watch, the viewer or the listener, uh, share a little bit of your bio that just gives us a sense of who you are, what you're committed to and what you're particularly okay, yeah, yeah. passionate about. Um, well, I started off as a scientist, actually as a mathematician, because I loved it. And I got moved from there into theoretical physics. And then I just got more and more interested in the mind and consciousness and realized there was whole aspects there, which physics was never going to touch on. And that got me interested in Eastern philosophy and meditation. And ultimately, what is spirituality? As a kid, I totally rejected religion. It was just like a load of, you know, superstitious mythology. And how, how were you raised religiously or philosophically? What kind of family did you grow up um, in? I was in England. And at that time, you know, talking about the 50s, it was 95% Church of England. And, you know, in our village, people went to church. Probably once a month was deemed to be good enough for your sins. And, and then it was, you know, went through the process of confirmation about 13 when you become a confirmed member of the church. And, you know, yes. And I realized this thing called the Nicene Creed, you know, you know it well, I believe in one God, the Father, you know, we can chant it. And I thought it was just a chant you did in church. I realized, no, it was a creed. I to sign off on this. And I just thought, I cannot sign off on a single line of this. Yes. I just told my parents, you know, I've had it. And they said, fine. Yeah. In fact, years later, years later, my mother said to me, she said, you know, I never believed that stuff myself anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I, it was 
when I got into Eastern philosophy and meditation, I realized there was something to spirituality. Yeah. And there was something that underlay all the great religions. And so part of my journey has been really trying to distill out the essence of the spiritual teachings and share that with people in a way that's appropriate for 21st century language speaking needs, concerns. And so it's like, how do we bring that out in today's world? And meditation has continued to be an important part of that and teaching meditation. And in recent years, that's become even more important. I just see during what's coming, the ability to step back, to let go of our assumptions, to come back to center, to come back to stillness is going to become more and more important. And so I've been spending more time really just sharing what I think is the essence of meditation, which is just you know, it's got a lot of paraphernalia around in different traditions, but for me, the essence is just allowing the mind to become still. Yes. And enjoying that. Yeah. Really enjoying it. And then parallel to that has been a whole interest in, well, first of all, science and consciousness. How how does science understand consciousness? Can science explain consciousness? Or is consciousness something that's fundamental to the cosmos? And I've written a couple of books on that. Waking Up in Time, and from science to God, which was really looking at my own journey, but it's the exploration of consciousness. But I think what I've been most well known for was a book I wrote way back in the early 80s called The Global Brain. And that became pretty well known in that this was before the internet as such actually existed. And I'd been involved in, I did a thesis in computer science. I was involved in the early networking of computers and I saw where that was going. Mm -hmm. And the book was really about how we were beginning to link up. We were the nerve cells of a global brain beginning to link up. And so, yeah, that was very much a strong part of my development. And that's part of, I suppose, an ongoing thread to my life is the big picture stuff where are we in evolutionary history where are we going and the global brain was part of that big picture thinking about about humanity our place in the cosmos and our place in the whole evolutionary journey yeah yeah. and and that's very much there today looking at what you mentioned earlier the whole exponential growth which again is something i've always been fascinated by because when i was a mathematician way back as a teenager i you know started getting fascinated by exponential functions and things and just realizing the human mind cannot comprehend exponentiality we think in linear terms and the exponential function where it leads is it's just beyond our ability to comprehend we didn't grow up thinking in exponential terms we didn't evolve humanity didn't evolve in those in that sort of thinking yes yeah so that's that's become just recently a much stronger part of my thinking, trying to share with people what that means in terms yeah. of where we're going. But I'm curious, how has your worldview shifted or expanded uh, over time to where 
I, I told one person that I'd be having an interview, a conversation with you on this. And they said, wow, Peter Russell, really? Cause they associated with you with sort of your earlier stuff, mm -hmm. uh, which was all sort of light and positivity, or at least that's the way this person interpreted it. Yeah. Um, and your more recent stuff is, and I want you to say a little bit about that, that really sees that exponential growth is actually self-destructive. Uh, and so how do you hold that? And how did that shift over time for you? And especially how was that for you emotionally? Anything you want to share around yeah. that? It's interesting because actually there wasn't so much a shift. I think the two have always been there together. Um, again, I remember back as a teenager, I started looking at where things were going and my sort of the way I phrase it to myself is this is leading to impossible situations in the future. Yes. Impossible situations don't happen. Therefore, something major is going to shift. <laughs> That's the way <laughs> That's I good. phrase it. Yeah. But all along, I've had this feeling that, yes, there's the positive, the technology, and the global brain was very much looking at that. But also, there was a whole chapter in the global brain, which was about, are we a planetary cancer? So it was there. So, so that side was there. And just saying, yes, you know, yes. you look, at, look at cancers and the characteristics of cancers and how they develop and things. There's, there's a lot of parallels with the way humanity is developing on the planet. So, so that was there. And the more positive side, I was saying, well, you know, cancers can undergo spontaneous remission. Perhaps humanity can undergo spontaneous remission. So I sort of had that hopeful side. And I also, I think there's, there's part of me, which in my writing and pr presenting, I know people like to have hope and they like that. And so I was, you know, wanting to present hopeful pictures so that people would like it and read my books and follow me, etc. And so I sort of played down that side. Mm. I think the sh a shift I went through was about 20 years ago, um, Waking Up in Time had just come out. Right, I read that. And part of, the, part of the thesis there was, yes, you know, we're in trouble. Um, but if we just get our act together, get our consciousness together and wake up spiritually, then we can remedy that. But I'm saying the root cause, the root cause of this is our, um, we, we call our ego minds, our, our lack of connection with ourself, our materialism. If we can break out of that, then we can change things. And after each lecture, I had this sort of niggle in the back of my mind, like, uh, uh, and I sat down one evening and just thinking, okay, what's going on here? And at the time I was working with the Shell Corporation. Um, they do these long-term thinking right. scenarios. Right. Every three years, they look 25 years ahead. And the team I was working with, we had two scenarios we were presenting to the board. And then there was scenario X under the table, which we all agreed upon was a scenario, but was useless to the board, which was basically, we screwed up. Humanity has screwed up. That is no use if you're deciding where to build a right. your next refinery. Right. But then I look, okay, supposing, you, let's look at that scenario. What does that mean? And it means there's going to be, you know, an unraveling, there's going to be a lot of suffering and, and various things. I looked at how society would be and what is needed. And then I realized, you know, what is needed then is, you know, again, greater flexibility of thinking, compassion, easing each other's suffering, uh, and again, an awakening of the individual, and more love, these sorts of things. And I realized, whichever way it went, 
whether it's going to be, you know, through our consciousness, we're going to wake up and save ourselves or whether the unraveling was happening. The same basic um, awakening, shift in consciousness was needed. And so it sort of didn't make any difference which way things went in terms of the, the spiritual work that was needed. And that was, that was freeing in a way. And it freed me from being too attached to one scenario or the other and brought yeah. me back to, you know, teaching more about the, you know, how do we awaken our consciousness? How do we liberate ourselves from the ego mind? This sort of yeah. thing. That, that seems to be the essential work. Either way, it's the same work. Yeah. And that was, that was an interesting turning point for me. It sort of brought these two strands, which have been sort of a little bit, you know, polarized in my thinking. Sure. And I sort of kept one down. Suddenly, they sort of came together as, as okay. They could fit together in my thinking. So that was, that was a shift about 20 years ago. And then just, I think over time with what's been happening with, you know, climate change and things and almost all the other, you know, aspects of what the club of Rome called the global problematic. I remember right. listing about a, a hundred different things that, right. you know, that are unraveling. Our ability to solve any of them is we have the ability but the, the motivation to actually do it is very limited and just realizing, you know, hang on, we're not going to, even if we, you know, solve, we managed to sort of solve the ozone layer. I mean, that was one problem where we, the world got together and sort of solved it. There's, there's 99 others waiting in the wings of which we're doing very little. I'm just thinking, you know, it's just, you know, foolhardy to think we're going to solve all the problems and move into a nice rosy new age it's like no we're, we're heading into we're heading into something very different and yes. uncomfortable i see energy sort of as foundational and that um what from seven eight thousand years ago until roughly about 300 years ago until we started really using coal and then oil and natural gas during that time we have the rise and fall of 100 plus civilizations and the more complex, larger city-based civilizations and empires um, had many, many things in common because their primary source of energy was agriculture. It was, it was you know, sunlight via grain and yeah. that sort of thing. And that with the discovery of, of these fossil fuels, coal, oil, and natural gas, that allowed us a source of energy that would drive complexity like a Petri dish, you know, mm. sort of, and food, um, and yet, because those are um, non-renewable resources, they're not finite. I mean, they are finite. They're not infinite on a finite planet. We would eventually get back to sort of trees, um, grain, if, if the climate allows the growing of those, if it's stable enough, um, and human and animal muscle power. And so I see complexity not as a never-ending thing, even, I mean, it's, it, it, it's going to collapse at some point, but that I'm imagining this, there will never be, let's say some humanity, some portion of humanity survives this bottleneck and there's say 700 pockets of humanity in isolated places around the world. And so we survive another million or 2 million years before an asteroid or super volcano or whatever takes us <laughs> out. It seems to me that um, there will never be another global civilization like this because we don't have the energy sources. We'll be back to more simpler or less complex uh, forms of, of, uh, of governance. It's, it's, it's like I now interpret evolution 
including the history of everyone and everything, the epoch of evolution or big history. I now interpret that in light of ecology. So for me, ecology, ecological laws are fundamental. And whereas I used to interpret everything in light of evolution, and that led me to a place that I now critique myself as being too anthropocentric, too human-centered, and too linear. It was all about us, and I now see that differently. So I'm curious if you have any response to any of that, because that, that's been the only things that I've been, I've sometimes wondered, huh, I wonder if, if uh, Peter and I are on the same page with respect to that or not, because you have surprised me in your recent years by being so straight there looking at the bad news completely clear-eyed and then again coming back to the shifts in consciousness and practices that can allow yeah. us that help us to be to be equanimous and to have peace and joy and a sense of meaning and purpose in contracting chaotic difficult times so anything you want to say in response to any of that um i don't know what's going to happen you know after the collapse post-collapse, whether, you know, there will be pockets of humanity left or whether we will have made, you know, global warming, if it goes up 10 degrees, the planet yeah. may be un uninhabitable for large right. creatures such as ourselves. There may be no pockets left. I mean, it's not only energy. We will have consumed all the available sources of energy. A lot right. of the minerals yes, we exactly. are consuming. And, you know, copper is, you know, we've got 20, 30 years of copper left. Other things, other minerals, which are essential to modern technology, will have gone. And whereas, you know, oil and coal are maybe 10 million years ago they were laid down, or 100 million years ago, the minerals were laid down millions, billions of years ago. And it's like, that was once in a planet's lifetime opportunity, which we've consumed. So there won't be the minerals right. to actually use in technology. So I think this is a once in a planet's lifetime um, dip into that sort of material technology. So I think you're right. So in that respect, I mean, I, I agree with you that any, you know, post-doom, um, I wouldn't even call it civilization, but whatever it is, um, communities. Like cult cultures, communities. Cultures, right. cultures, yes. We'll be needing to go back to, to more basic things. Um, and it needs to be much smaller number of population. I mean, you, you mentioned trees, but I mean, the deforestation has been going on for hundreds thousands of years i mean the middle east used to be this garden you know the gardens hanging gardens of babylon is now desert the sahara there's evidence that the sahara was green but we used the wood there it was the two main things it was construction wood was used for construction and wood was the fuel so what, although wood is technically you know can regenerate as a fuel we were using it so fast and it just went to desert John Perlin wrote a book called Forest Journey, the story of wood and civilization, where he makes exactly that point. He takes a look at the last five, 6,000 years and how old, it, it actually becomes uh, depressing to read it because city-based human-centered civilizations consistently wipe out their forests, wipe out their soil, you know, destroy their soil. And we see civilization over and over and over again, uh, civilizations contracting because of that. Right. So in a way, you could say it wasn't the burning of fossil fuels, coal and oil. It was the burning of wood, which goes back to the discovery of fire a million years ago. Yeah. Well, taming, not the discovery of fire, but discovering how to tame fire and use it. Right. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things that, you know, caught me in my child, when I was a teen, yeah, teenager, I went to this forest outside Paris, where in the middle of this forest, there was about two acres of sandy desert. They had camels as a tourist attraction of things. And you rode the camels in the middle of this forest. 
And the story was very clear. This area of the forest had been cleared, whatever it was, 50 years ago. And without the trees, it just went back to desert. The sandy soil went straight to desert. And that just struck me so deep that with deforestation, it, it may not regrow. It depends upon the area. Some areas, deciduous forests, maybe, you know, can grow. This forest just collapsed. And then just realizing this is what's happening to many forests. They just, they go to desert and they're not going to regenerate. I'm hoping in this series to provide a whole breadth of tools and resources and perspectives and a sense of identity. One of the things that I know uh, is inspiring to both of us is that our sense of self doesn't stop with the skin. It's mm -hmm. the larger biosphere, the ultimately the universe and the great mystery, the great right. reality uh, that embeds all that or that holds all that. Um, so say, uh, say something about, actually feel free to share as much as you want about what tools you teach, what, what, uh, what uh, practices you uh, uh, practice yourself and, and teach that can help people to maintain a sense of balance and integrity and uh, generosity and compassion mm -hmm. in these painful, difficult, scary times? Right. I think for me, it's the basic tool of, of meditation that I think for, for the mind to settle down, I think is a completely natural thing, which we lost. If you go back to you know, imagining how life was for uh, indigenous hunter-gatherers, they would have spent quite a bit of time exercising, running around, walking, chasing, whatever. And they'd have spent quite a bit of time just waiting, yes. watching. Noticing. And yeah, and we've lost both those skills. You know, So now we've, we say, okay, we're not exercising enough. So there's a great emphasis on going to the gym and running and exercising. We're trying to bring that back in. But, you know, we, we just sit and think. So we, we spend so much time thinking and we get totally caught up in the thinking mind that we never actually give ourselves a chance to pause and settle back into just being. And that to me is essential for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, a lot of that thinking is totally unnecessary. It's all about things we thought about before or might never happen, whatever. And it creates stress in us. It's a source of a lot of the stress, our worries, our anxieties about whether things are going to work out right for us in the future. We don't actually give ourselves the chance to, you know, be at present with ourselves in the moment. And most of that thinking is egoic in one way or another. By egoic, I mean it's concerned with our own safety and survival, safety and survival of the organism. And so we develop a model of the self, the ego, which is related to this body. And so when we say I, we're talking about this body and how to navigate this body through the world, deal with the social stuff that comes up, the physical stuff, how, how are we going to help this body survive? Which is totally appropriate, totally natural, nothing wrong with that, except 90% of the time we don't need it. But we're, we're caught up in this egoic thinking, and that leads us into a competitive mode with other people. It leads us into a self-centered attitude with things. And we miss out on our real sense of self, which is as many, almost all the teachings are saying in one way or another, that that self, the ego self, is just a constructed idea of who we are. And, and it usually doesn't, and it usually doesn't include our sense of self, rarely includes, though it should, 
uh, because it's factually true. Our microbiome, for example, that we don't exist without, the trees and the uh, plankton that provide our oxygen, the animals that provide us yep. the energy, not animals and plants, but that we eat, the food that provides the energy, so that we rarely include that in our sense of self. Right. It's very much this organism, this particular organism, how, how is it going to make, how is it going to help this organism survive? So it's a very limited sense of self. And it's a separate sense of self in the sense it is me here, separate from the world, and I have to use, manipulate, control the world in order for my own well-being. Right. And then there's the other sense of self, which again is what most of the spiritual teachings are pointing to, which is just the I that is aware. The I that is aware of this moment, it was the same I that was aware of yesterday, the same I that was you know, my childhood was aware of what's happening. And it's, it's that sense of, of being that never changes. The ego mind is always changing, that sense of I-ness. And what all the teachings to me point out is that when you drop back into that sense of being, you find a sense of stability, a sense of um, equilibrium, fulfillment, and an opening of the heart. And these are the... Um, capacities the faculties that we really need to develop to steer our way through and and again again so much comes back to love compassion and open heart and it's the thinking mind which cuts us off from the heart so i think we need techniques of stepping out of the thinking mind as often as possible and coming back to our own beingness and that open heart space in order to really draw upon our inner resources to go out into the world. And this is the important point. People think meditation is just retiring from the world. I don't see it as at all. It's a temporary retiring from thinking activity in order to go out there much more effectively without the distractions of the ego mind, but coming much more from our own inner knowing, our true source. There's a distinct difference in brain pattern and brain structure and use when we notice and when we think. And thinking is a different patterning than noticing yeah. and so i see meditation in part helping to develop the habit like exercising a muscle of noticing rather than thinking uh, and it gets back to that indigenous sense that yeah it, 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 tribal peoples first peoples people who lived in an intimate rapport with primary reality as primary a lot of their day would have been noticing and then acting on instinct that had been shaped for millions of years to help survive and thrive in natural contexts not human constructed context um, and so the better we get at noticing then allows us to be engaged in whatever work we do at whatever scale from a very different place. And That's the fundamental thing for me. Um, and also, I suppose along that is to, alongside that is to get people to shift their perspective of what's happening in the world. And, and that's more, you know, changing. We're seeing, seeing things from a deeper perspective. That's where the evolutionary perspective comes in for me. Um, well, yes, yeah, so go, go deep into that one, because one of the next questions I was going to ask was related to how has the universe story or epic of evolution yeah. or the big picture um, informed you, uh, uh, inspired you, whatever. So go into that. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, the essential thing is there's no blame for where we are. I think we're, what we've arrived at is an inevitable point in the history of any technologically empowered species, any technologically empowered intelligence. There is no blame. I mean, we could have taken different directions 
all along the way, but we'd have ended up in a similar situation. And people are so much they want to blame, or was it the Industrial Revolution, the European Enlightenment, the civilization, the loss of matriarchy, whatever it was, people always want to put blame on where we went wrong. I don't think we ever went wrong. I think what's happening is, it's a natural consequence of three things that happened way back in our evolutionary past when when the human line broke away from the other great apes and what made humans successful was was three things tool use but all, all the other apes are tool users i mean we've, we've been tool users all along there's nothing new in that but and then we started developing larger brains which gave us the capacity to process more information but most importantly, we developed language, speech. Again, language is not new, but speech allows us to form abstract ideas, to share our experiences with each other, to build up a body of knowledge and understanding. And that really also holds culture together. Right. So and, those... and, and, and groups, groups of increasing size uh, to be organized for whatever purpose. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And I think that that came out of the ability to to communicate and share. And so those three things that tool use, larger brains and speech led to us being a much more innovative species. We, we were innovators. And so, you know, we started innovating with the tools, making better tools. You know, we mentioned fire in it agriculture all these and spears being able to kill at a distance with spears yeah. yes i think in a way you mentioned that i think that was a fund of, if there was ever a time we broke from nature i think it was the spear because before then you know if we were hunting we had to go and catch the animal we had to you know maybe form traps or grab it or something but we had to put our hands into get, get engaged throwing a spear meant you know, we were separate from nature. And I think that was the seed of the idea of domination, that we were the dominators. And so if, if there was a moment, I think, I think it was the spear. But then of course, you know, all that's developed. But the interesting thing is that innovation leads to more innovation. You get a positive feedback loop. And this is what's led to the accelerations. So I think the acceleration began way back. You know, you can see you know, how, how millions of years the tool use developed and then fire and then civilization. You know, we're talking agriculture probably 10, 20,000 years ago, something like that. Although we keep on pushing the boundaries back, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, things just grew faster and faster. Then you know, the discovery of the wheel and the, the lever or the lever, as you say here, combined with fire led to the industrial revolution which was started 250 years ago the information revolution 50 years ago we're now moving into what i call the intelligence revolution with artificial intelligence but you can see the whole thing speeding up faster and faster and faster and it's because of this very natural principle that innovation breeds innovation by which i mean that any new development makes it easier for future development I mean, so the you know, classic case is with the Industrial Revolution, we developed means of mass production, mass distribution, factories, those sorts of things. When the computer revolution came along, we didn't have to reinvent those. We could simply plug it in. So the information revolution happened much faster because it was standing on the back of the Industrial Revolution. And artificial intelligence and that revolution is standing on the back of the whole information revolution. So this speeding up 
is completely natural and it's completely inevitable. And so I think this, the exponential growth isn't, it's just, it's bound, it's bound to happen. There's no way of avoiding it. And, you know, people look at the positive side of that, where it's going. People talk about the singularity when we have artificial intelligence, which is more intelligent than the human brain. And all that's going to do is make things go even faster. Exactly. When you get, you know, artificial intelligence, defining better, creating better artificial intelligence, it just, the acceleration just takes off. And this is why, you know, even now we say the pace of life is so fast, we can't comprehend how things are going to be 10 years, 15 years down the road, or even, you know, 50 years down the road, it's going to be unimaginable, the pace of change, the way it's going. But the side, that's the side that most people look at of exponential change, the technology of all these wonderful new things. But there's the other side that I've been looking at, which is the stress that exponential growth places on the system, which you've in a way touched upon earlier. I mean, if you, Climate change is just one example. It's a result of the exponential growth of fuel consumption. We are now producing CO2 thousands of times faster than the planet can reabsorb it. In the past, you know, maybe with the burning of trees, it was so slow the planet could reabsorb the CO2, possibly. But now that exponential growth means we have an exponential growth of CO2 in the atmosphere. And almost everything, almost every aspect of what's going wrong in the current crisis comes back in one way or another to the exponential growth. Yeah. So I see this is, the, this is the stress of exponential growth. I mean, stress is usually defined as the inability to adapt. And the, the system as a whole cannot adapt fast enough to the changes that we are creating. That eventually leads to breakdown. You know, if you if you spin a wheel faster and faster, it eventually flies apart. So I think the breakdown that we're seeing is an inevitable consequence of the exponential growth. So just as the exponential growth is inevitable, so ultimately the breakdown is. And so I see this point we've reached comes about for any technologically empowered intelligence. I say that because I think others, other intelligences, you know, the whales, the dolphins, right. elephants, which haven't developed tools and they're on a much more steady rate of evolution. But if that is that when that creativity, that innovation takes off, that we move into this accelerated growth. Where this leads me in terms of the future, I think it's, I mentioned doom and, doom and light. Uh, it's like, yes, things, things are unraveling. And at the same time, you know, the technology and science is developing at ever increasing speed. So I see us moving into a world where we're going to have, you know, technology beyond our dreams and scientific advances, maybe coming to, you know, understanding of the unified field theory. At the same time, the world's sort of breaking apart at the seams. The two things are going to be happening together. And who knows where this, how this ends up. But for me, this is important to say, it's not just within, within the doom, there is also light. That The two things that sort of break through and break down happening at the same time. And I yeah. think in the past, and the way I saw it, it was either, it was either breakthrough or breakdown. It was one or right. the other. Right. For me now, it's seeing, no, the two things are happening together, parallel. And also, you know, we mentioned consciousness and awakening. That's also on its own exponential curve. 
but I mean, you get exponential growth whenever there's positive feedback. And in terms of just you know, the, positive the, meaning, self-reinforcing, not self, necessarily yeah, good. Positive, right? Yeah. So feedback that reinforces itself. I mean, the classic is, you know, compound interest. The more interest you have, the bigger your capital, the faster it grows. And, you know, the more people that are, you know, waking up, stepping out of the ego mind, or whatever, the more they can share that with other people, the more teachers there are, the more the greater the understanding. I mean, just look at the, you know, the books on contemporary spirituality. When I started in this area, you know, 50, more than 50 years ago, there was a handful of books. It was like one shelf on top of the Cambridge, big Cambridge bookstore. Now you have, you know, bookstores devoted to that and they only have a fraction of the books. So this is all positive feedback. So the awakening of consciousness is also on its own accelerating curve. So you've got three trends together. You've got the acceleration of science and technology. You've got the accelerating unraveling and you've got the accelerating awakening of consciousness or all coming together at the same time and that has never happened on the planet before i have no idea where that leads to what do you think is inevitable or highly likely um and then what is still possible where can we still make a difference i think what is inevitable now is the collapse of this culture civilization global collapse which is going to be it's going to be more than painful it's going to be disastrous for many people it's going to be the unraveling of the economy the unraveling of a lot of social systems um stuff we've got so used to it's going to be it's going to be a dark time in that respect um and i don't think there is any avoiding that unfortunately um how do we cope with that again it's that comes back to the individual our own capacity to help others in their suffering, comes back to how much we can develop, open our own hearts. So I think there's a lot there that's, that's possible. People have been through hard times. I mean, I had friends who, you know, been in war-torn war areas where, you know, the sort of scenario we're imagining happening of just, you know, breakdown, not getting yeah. food, losing their homes, that sort of thing, um, civil unrest. And they, they came through, and they came through through that human ability. I remember one friend who was, she actually ran a whole food restaurant, four whole food restaurants in Zagreb, in Yugos the old Yugoslavia, when that was being bombed, and she lost three of her four shops. And I said, how did you survive you know, emotionally? She said, being able to sit down with friends and have a cup of tea. Yes, yes. So there's, there's something about community, which is yes. community is going to be really important in seeing us through, as well as, you know, developing our own inner stability and um, flexibility. In terms of coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot, resource depletion, <laughs> climate breakdown, etc., speak to what you found on the other side of what I'm calling the post-doom doorway. And it was after sort of getting through the disappointment, the grief, the anger, whatever, the, whatever emotions are there when you realize that it's not all just going to be, you know, uh, butterflies and unicorns and roses and, you know, wonderfulness. Um, what has opened up for you on the other side? Like what Paul Traferka calls finding the gift. What's opened up for you beyond just mere acceptance to finding the gift in these times? Right. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I've moved beyond the grieving. I mean, I'm fine. The grieving is yes. actually increasing. Yes. I mean, when I, 
and it's not grieving for humanity. For me, it's more and more grieving for the other species. I mean, I, I've spent quite a bit of time, fortunately, with whales and dolphins live in the ocean. And I, I have incredible admiration, respect for these beings. Who knows what goes on inside them? But I think they are, in terms of the heart, they are where we should be. And to think that these, these beings and you know, many, many other beings are, are suffering and may become extinct. That I grieve over that more and more. That's what, and the loss, of, the loss of the forest I grieve yes. over. So it isn't the grieving has ended. So I think it's, it's balanced by, I mean, the word I'm using these days is, is gratitude. Gratitude for, for just, for, for being alive, for being these incredible creatures that we are. And that, in fact, it came to me I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels with death here and how we, how we relate to individual death. And we know that's inevitable. We, we don't think it's going to happen today. Could do, but, you know, we push it off. It's going to happen sometime. We accept that. And, you know, when, when someone dies, we both mourn them and we celebrate them. And I know I lost both my parents recently very old ages. My father was three days short of 100. My mother was 99. Oh, gosh. And they both had, you know, full lives, full lives all the way. And hadn't, they weren't, they hadn't had terminal illnesses. They went, you know, quote, naturally, as natural as anything is. And I could not have wished, oh, my God, you know, that's a premature death. It was, they had, <laughs> it was a delay. They had a wonderful long life and I mourned them. I was sad. There was sorrow and there was incredible gratitude and love for them. And the two things together, and that always, that struck me and just the feeling of the gratitude. And I'm feeling more, it's like, it's almost rejoicing in who we are and what we are and and our um our spiritual abilities to to open up to love to move out of the the ego mind and i think we need i think that for me balances the doom scenario it's like what what can we really become in this short time left to us what can we yeah. become in this short time and i think that's part of the reason that we are so disturbed by the possibility of the end of the species is it's like oh there's going to be no time to become all that we could be we think we're going to need thousands millions of years to really become what we can be and we so attach this idea of a long-term future but given that things are moving faster and faster i think there's the potential to become all that we can be as individuals in that very limited time left for the species i'm not i don't think you know, we are all going to be wiped out, you and us alive today. We, you know, we may live our own full lives. It may not be as pleasant as we had hoped for. Um, and who knows, we may die of other things we hadn't expected. But gradually, there's going to be less and less of us over time. So that dying up, we, we still have this incredible potential. And so it's, it's, a, it's a rejoicing in that, yeah. you know, to be alive to be a self-aware conscious organism 
able to reflect upon the universe, reflect upon oneself, to reflect upon what is happening, to have this awareness, to be able to step back and touch into the deeper beingness that all the great traditions have pointed to. This is so, so special and, and such a gift and that maybe the, the fulfillment of the evolution of consciousness is that, is that complete deeper knowing of the nature of reality. And yeah. that doesn't take thousands or more millions of years. We have, we have the seeds of that. We have the tools for that. This is what inspires me is, is that science uh, or the rational side of consciousness has been about understanding, noticing, observing, understanding. Mm -hmm. But the mythic element is about relating. Mm -hmm. And it's, 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 it, when myth is doing its job, when, when genuine uh, myth is doing its, its, what its evolutionary potential, what it's there for, is to help us relate in a healthy way to primary mm -hmm. reality. And so I, I do see a, a revival of mythic consciousness, not necessarily otherworldly, but as helping us relate to our times, to relate to the past and the future, even a future without us, and to relate to this divine body of which we are a part and upon which we depend, yeah. um, even if it means that we go extinct soon. Yeah. And I think, you know, your, your own story, and I think this is something that many people find, you know, when you're faced with your death becoming a lot closer, whether it's through cancer or an accident or something, that can lead to a transformation. And, you know, you hear stories of people realizing that it's not about chasing money and success, but it's about the relation, the love, whatever it is. It can be a transforming moment, yes. a transforming situation. And maybe, you know, if we can accept this is what's happening, and it's actually inevitable. There's, there's no actual blame. This, this is the way it is for a technologically impaired intelligence. This is what happens to it. To accept that could be a turning point in our own transformation. Yes. It, yes. It's a deep acceptance. It's not an acceptance of... Like, it's not a resignation. It's not a resignation, right. It's an acceptance of this is how things are. It's not like, oh dear, I wish things were different and I'm resigned to things not being the way I wanted. It's like, no, th this is the way things are. Well, Peter, this has been wonderful. Any, things, any final things that you'd like to say to bring this to closure? Yes, some, something. I just have this, this image, which I um, ended my article with, of the century plant. You know, the century plant that grows, it takes you know, 20 years it's growing. And finally, after 20 years, it's flowers. And this beautiful, you know, 10, 15 foot high flower. And, and we sort of marvel at it and celebrate it. And, but we don't say afterwards, oh, I wish it had kept going. I wish it had kept going. It was like, it's like, wow. And I think for me, it's that same sort of wow about us. Wow, we've come on this wonderful journey of opening and exploration and development and wow here we are and maybe it's time for the flowering to end i talk about you know it's the blossoming of consciousness consciousness blossoms in the universe occasionally on a planet and it goes through this when it blossoms it buds ever more rapidly and you know we're going we're in this flowering of consciousness and maybe it doesn't last forever but let us you know just really celebrate this wonderful being that we are, whatever is going to happen. 
For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.